You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. say potato, I say a dangerous tuber that people will only eat in the face of actual starvation. You say tomato, I say a poison apple from the mysterious new world that kills the aristocracy. We can hardly imagine a salad without tomatoes or a trip to the drive through without fries. But did you know it took Europeans nearly two centuries to believe these foods, both members of the nightshade family, were safe and even healthy to consume? My name's Moxie, and this is Your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The lumpy, dirty potato spread slowly through Europe after being brought back from South America to Spain in 1570. The Swiss believed potato consumption would lead to infection of the lymph nodes. The Burgundy region of France outlawed their cultivation entirely. Some thought spuds would cause sterility. Others thought they caused rampant sexuality. You have Antoine Augustin Parmentier to thank for your fries, mash, and hash browns. Forced to subsist on potatoes almost exclusively as a prisoner of the Prussians during the Seven-Year War, Parmentier not only survived, but thrived. Changing public opinion was an uphill battle. Even serving potatoes to the king, who suffered no ill effects, wasn't enough. Parmentier's genius stroke was to make people think they weren't allowed to have potatoes. He had his land filled with potato plots and hired guards to protect the land, guards who were instructed to turn a blind eye to theft and accept any and all bribes so that the public would steal the potatoes and grow their own. After a time, Parmentier dismissed the guards, and as he suspected, locals raided his land, stealing nearly every potato plant growing there. By the following year, nearly every local farmer was growing their own potatoes. The potato's geographical and botanical cousin, the tomato, fared better initially. Spain, Portugal, and Italy welcomed it with open mouths. The rest of Europe, not so much. Tomatoes were blamed for health problems in the upper-class people who were actually willing to eat them. The wealthy ate from pewter plates, a metal high in lead. The acid from the tomatoes would leach the lead from the plates, resulting in sometimes fatal lead poisoning. Even in the American colonies of the 1700s, tomatoes were viewed as a curious ornamental plant. Making matters worse, the tomato hornworm, a conspicuously ugly three to four inch green worm with a red horn on its rear end that can ruin entire tomato crops, was considered to be separately poisonous and as dangerous as a rattlesnake. In reality, you can safely pick them off with your bare hands to dispatch them in whatever manner you see fit. The apocryphal champion of the wolf peach was New Jersey gentleman farmer Robert Gibbon Johnson. According to the Salem Historical Society, In 1820, around 2,000 people were jammed into the town square. 
Johnson emerged from his mansion and headed up Market Street toward the courthouse, dressed in his usual black suit with white ruffles, black shoes and gloves, tricorn hat and cane. At the courthouse steps, he spoke to the crowd. To help dispel the tall tales, the fantastic fables that you have been hearing, and to prove to you that it is not poisonous, I am going to eat one right now. There was not a sound as he dramatically brought the tomato to his lips and took a bite. A woman in the crowd screamed and fainted, but no one paid her any attention. They were all watching Johnson as he took one bite after another. He raised both arms. The crowd cheered, and the fireman's band blared a song. He's done it, they shouted. He's still alive. We know that tomatoes and potatoes come from Central and South America, but a lot of foods don't come from where we've been led to believe. Let's go to the lightning round. Croissants aren't from France. They were created in Vienna, Austria in 1683 to commemorate the defeat of the Turkish forces who were attempting to tunnel under the city and were heard by the bakers who were working in the early morning. Vienna also gave us Danish pastry. Sorry, Denmark. French fries are Belgian, and Pulp Fiction was telling the truth about the mayonnaise, though it comes in many flavors. Think aioli. Philadelphia cream cheese was invented in New York. Don't bother ordering London broil in Britain. It's an American moniker for cheap top-round steak to make the sound fancier. On the flip side, Fig Newtons were created in Newton, Massachusetts. Monterey Jack cheese was invented by David Jack in Monterey, California. Worcestershire sauce is indeed from Worcester, England. Cantaloupes were first cultivated in Cantalupo, Italy. Sardines are plentiful off the island of Sardinia. Tangerine means from Tangiers, and romaine lettuce did originate in Rome. Some foods must be from a specific place in order to use their proper name. This is called terroir. Kobe beef comes only from unbelievably pampered cows in Kobe, Japan. If your tequila didn't come from Mexico, the distiller is violating the denomination of origin protection. Probably the best known terroir is that champagne that doesn't come from the Champagne region of France is simply a sparkling white wine. But wait, you're probably thinking it's labeled champagne at the store down the road, but it comes from California. That's thanks to an agreement between the United States and the European Union which, after two decades of negotiation, grandfathered in all producers who had already been using region-specific names like Champagne, Burgundy, and Sherry. A lot of foods change their name when you get your passport stamped. What's French toast in America is Poor Knights of Windsor in England and Pan Perdu, or Lost Bread, in France. Italy and America say arugula, whereas the British Commonwealth says rocket. They also use the name Swede for what the Yanks call rutabagas. The same goes with zucchini and courgettes, eggplants and aubergines. Don't get me started on biscuits and pudding. Then there are foods that required the effort of more than one country to bring them into existence. The more pedantic among us, this reporter included, know that sushi refers to the vinegared rice and not the fish. If we're really on a tear, we'll probably snub the inside-out California roll as being not real sushi. And then we'll reach for a salmon roll, never knowing we have the descendants of Vikings, not samurai, to thank for it. Hey, it's not easy thinking you're right all the time. Like the aforementioned taters and maters were to Europe, raw salmon went over like a lead dirigible in Japan. Pacific salmon carries parasites, like flatworms and cyst-producing mixozoans, which become epidemic in farming situations. Further, Japanese people just 
didn't favor the color and the smell of raw salmon, or even the shape of the fish's head. It simply didn't look right to them, so it was a hard pass. In the mid-80s, the fishing industry of Norway found itself with a huge supply of salmon, but not enough demand, and they needed to find a new market. This led to the formation of Project Japan, headed by Bjorn Erik Olsen, who should also be awarded an honorary medal for most Norwegian name ever. The goal of Project Japan was to convince the Japanese public that raw salmon was safe to eat, which would be analogous to trying to convince Westerners to eat raw pork on your say-so. They persevered through ten years of failed ad campaigns and high-level business lunches with plates of salmon rolls left untouched. Finally, Olsen landed a sale with respected frozen food company Nishi-Rei to get salmon sushi into grocery stores. With a familiar name attached to it, salmon began to gain traction. Before long, it found its way onto the conveyor belts and carefully crafted plates of sushi restaurants across the country. What's more, the familiarity of Western diners with salmon aided in the introduction of sushi to Europe and America. Modern-day wise man George Carlin once asked, Where is the blue food? I can't find the flavor of blue. Green is lime, yellow is lemon, orange is orange, red is cherry. What's blue? There's no blue food. I don't say blueberry, because you know that stuff's purple. Outside of blue corn, you'd be hard-pressed to find blue food in nature. But walk down the candy aisle of your nearest grocery store, and one blue flavor pops up all over. Not blueberry. Raspberry. Raspberries are red. So why do we color things blue when we flavor them raspberry? We have to go back to the childhood favorite freezer pops like Otter Pops or Flavor Ice, those glorious plastic tubes of frozen sugar water without which summer is wasted. Manufacturers were having a difficult time making the colors that corresponded to cherry, strawberry, watermelon, and raspberry distinctive enough to be able to tell them apart. It got more complicated when the FDA banned red dye number two for causing severe reactions and possibly being carcinogenic. It would make for better copy if there was some terribly clever reason the food scientist went to blue next, but the simple reason was that they had blue coloring on hand and hadn't been able to use it. We also have to mention the gold metal company that makes icy slushies, who were also early adopters of blue raspberry, possibly even the originators, depending on your source. Side note, next time you need a science nerd laugh, check out the hashtag OverlyHonestMethods. There you'll find gems like, this dye was selected because the bottle was within reach. The experiment was left for the precise time it took us to get a cup of tea. And a modified protocol was implemented because a certain graduate student seems unable to follow simple instructions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. A more recent food invention, the turducken screams America. For those who have somehow avoided it, a turducken is a chicken inside a duck, inside a turkey, then roasted or fried. It has given rise to masticable madness like a 12-bird nesting doll of a dish and the churumple, a three-layer cake with a pie stuffed in each layer. These foods inside foods are obvious, but you may be eating some you don't even realize. Take the four rectangles of happiness that are Kit Kat bars, those chocolate-enrobed wafer cookies with chocolate filling. What the snappy ad campaign never told us was that the filling in Kit Kats is other Kit Kats. Even the most finely tuned production line will turn out a certain portion of unacceptable product. Rather than throw the defective units away or offer them for livestock feed, a common practice in candy manufacturing, Nestle grinds them up for use as the filling in the next batch. While we're most familiar with classic chocolate, Kit Kats are so staggeringly popular in Japan that they've been offered in over 200 different flavors, including green tea, strawberry cheesecake, wasabi, rum raisin, Tsuki bean, and purple sweet potato. Another sweet snack, which has been with us since 1907, is also manufactured in a way that would prompt internet dwellers' misuse of the word inception to describe it. It's that iconic chocolate taffy, ubiquitous in trick-or-treat bags, the Tootsie Roll. According to the company's own website, the recipe calls for the inclusion of the leftovers from the previous day's batch. This is referred to as graining and is a process that continues to this day. Theoretically, there is a bit of creator Leo Hirschfeld's very first Tootsie Roll in every one of the 64 million Tootsie Rolls produced each day. It's like realizing that our bodies are made from the elements that spread throughout the galaxy after the Big Bang, but tastier. Tootsie Rolls also hold the distinction of having saved the lives of American troops during the Battle of Chosin Reservoir during the Korean conflict. The entrenched Marines were outnumbered, outgunned, suffering below zero temperatures and running out of mortar rounds. They couldn't call for resupply because the area was heavy with enemy anti-air emplacements. Their supplies would simply be shot down. After two desperate days of waiting, the radio men had to risk it, using the code word Tootsie Roll to call for mortars. To their surprise, an airdrop came, with cases and cases of actual Tootsie Rolls. While they still needed ammo, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. The soldiers found the candy could be eaten frozen, unlike their rations, giving them valuable calories. They also chewed the candy to soften it and used it like a putty to patch bullet holes in their equipment, with the sub-zero winds freezing it solid. Though the division took heavy losses, their survival rate bordered on miraculous. Those who made it out of the Battle of Chosen Reservoir credited the Tootsie Roll with their survival and referred to themselves as the Chosen Few. A more pleasant experience with cold, drinking a glass of ice water is a refreshing proposition. 
Drinking a glass of ice water with mint gum in your mouth feels like being open palm slapped by a Yeti. The same goes for those brave or foolish souls who like to chew their Altoids. Why does mint possess the singular ability to make our mouths feel so cold? The culprit is menthol, a chemical in mint-flavored things that essentially causes your brain to misinterpret its presence. The receptor of interest is a protein TRPM8, or transient receptor potentialcation channel subfamily M, member 8. It is an ion channel which, when open, allows sodium and calcium ions to enter. This causes an action potential, an electrical signal running down to a neuron. Menthol causes the TRPM8 channel to open, as do low temperatures. When you eat something containing menthol, the TRPM channel opens and the brain interprets this signal as the sensation of cold, making mint feel cold. Is the mint in toothpaste also responsible for turning a tasty sweet glass of morning orange juice into a form of punishment? The credit or blame here goes to sodium lauryl sulfate. It's a surfactant, a substance which creates a satisfying froth by lowering the surface tension of your saliva and allowing bubbles to form. Sodium lauryl sulfate also suppresses the tongue's sweetness receptors and destroys phospholipids, fatty compounds that inhibit the bitter receptors. With sweet receptors out of commission and bitter receptors in full force, orange juice loses its appeal. Recent research also shows that the fluoride in toothpaste may react with the acetic acid in the juice, but results to bolster this theory are limited. It should surprise no one that scientists aren't investing very much time or resources into solving this particular mystery. In the meantime, remember the old wisdom, beer before liquor, never sicker, toothpaste before orange juice, dead. If you're skipping that glass of OJ, how about a cup of joe? A full 64% of Americans can't start their day without coffee to the tune of 280 million cups a day, though our consumption pales in comparison to other countries. France, Germany, and Switzerland drink 50% more than the U.S. Sweden doubles our consumption, but the most prodigious coffee drinkers are in the land of lakes and midnight sun, Finland, where people consume nearly 10 kilograms or over 20 pounds of coffee beans a year. Women drink only slightly less coffee than men in the U.S., an average of 1.5 cups a day versus 1.7 cups. But women are almost three times more likely to find themselves on a bathroom run after their coffee run. 53% of women report that coffee exonerates the bowels as opposed to only 19% of men. The scientific reason for this is unclear. It's not that researchers have no idea. They have too many ideas. Caffeine definitely plays a role, but it's only one piece of an ensemble. Caffeine contains colon-stimulating agents theophylline and xanthine. These create peristalsis, the wave-like muscle contractions in the intestines that move things along. We know about this increased muscle activity through the selflessness of study volunteers who agreed to the use of a probe during the study and to whom we owe our gratitude. However, decaf coffee also has a laxative effect, and other caffeine-containing products like energy drinks don't. Coffee contains over a thousand organic compounds, including multiple kinds of acid. A compound called chlorogenic acid triggers higher bile production and higher production of gastric acid. Exorphins in coffee, both regular and decaf, cause our bodies to release the hormones gastrin and cholecystokinine, which encourage movement in the intestines. Coffee is also high in magnesium, which can do the job, and there are yet even more potential causes that will have to go unnamed for now.
As ubiquitous as coffee is today, Christian Europe almost never had it. It's widely believed advisors in the church considered coffee to be the bitter invention of Satan, undoubtedly because of its popularity among Muslims. However, upon tasting it for himself, Pope Clement VIII declared, This Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use of it. Or he may have said, This devil's drink is delicious. We should cheat the devil by baptizing it. Though details are sketchy, this reporter feels safe in surmising that Clement liked the coffee, since there wasn't a papal bull issued against it then or since. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Food is as diverse as humanity, from seal meat in Alaska, to vegetable biryani in India, to balut in the Philippines, and guinea pig in Peru. At the same time, food is universal. We all need to eat to survive. But more than that, food can nourish the spirit as much as the body. It can be a way to spend time with friends or to show someone you love them. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.